Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here it is, the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit has finally come. This is what Jesus had been promising them when he said, It is better that I go, because when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the world. And Jesus had said, The works that I do, you will do, and greater works, because I go to the Father, and I'll send the Spirit. And so Jesus was just one person full of the Holy Spirit doing mighty works. But he was saying, it's better that I go because I'll send the Holy Spirit to the church. And the church will be many people full of the Holy Spirit, all going out and doing the works of Christ. And all of those works will end up being greater works than just one person could do, one Christ. Now there's going to be many Christ ones full of the Spirit doing the same works as Christ. And so here it's the day of Pentecost. Pentecost simply means 50, and it is 50 days after the Passover. We know that the original Passover was a lamb that Israel had to shed the blood of, put it on the doorposts, the lintels, the the upbeam and the crossbeam, and that signifies the cross, the blood of the cross. As the angel of death passes over, he will see the blood, and death won't come inside the house. And so that is symbolic of Christ. When his blood is shed on the cross, then death has to pass over. And those that are in Christ will not suffer the wrath of God and eternal death, but they will be set free as Israel through the lamb was set free from Egyptian bondage. And so they could go into the promised land, the land of rest, which is symbolically entering into Christ. Then when they're in the wilderness, 50 days after Passover, Moses was up the mountain and he received the Ten Commandments from God. And this was the original Pentecost. And when he came down from the mountain, the people down the bottom, the Israelites, were sinning. They would made an idol, a golden calf, and they were worshipping it and carrying on in all kinds of sexual immorality and debauchery. And Moses, he slams the Ten Commandments down. First person to break all Ten Commandments. And he was angry. And so anyway, because Israel had accepted the new law covenant that was now based on their performance, whether they are good or or bad, they'll be blessed or cursed. And because they were sinning and the law had come, now judgment would come upon Israel for their sin. And as a result of their sin and the law coming, 3,000 people were killed as the judgment of God. And when you contrast that to the new covenant, the fulfillment of Pentecost, you see the Holy Spirit coming. And then actually a bit later, we see 3,000 people got saved. And so The new covenant is superior. It is better. It's based on better promises. The promise of the spirit coming under the law covenant. 3000 people died because of their sin under the new covenant. 3000 people get saved, even though they were sinners. They had crucified Christ. They had done the worst kind of sin. And yet the grace of God came and salvation came to them. So this Pentecost is the ultimate fulfillment of Pentecost, just like Christ is the fulfillment of Pentecost. The Passover, the Holy Spirit coming is the fulfillment of Pentecost. 
And so I just love the way that the Bible describes how the Holy Spirit comes because it is so supernatural. And I believe that it happened the way the Bible describes it because I believe the Bible and I honor the word of God. And it says the Holy Spirit came. There was suddenly there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. I believe all of them would have heard it. It was supernatural, but it was also physically happening in the room. Here was the wind of God. The, the Holy Spirit is the pneuma, which means breath, <sighs> breath of God, the spirit of life. And he comes in like a mighty rushing wind. And then it says, and fire separated and rested upon each one of them. And I don't believe it was just a little flickering candle flame on the tops of their head, like all the religious pictures. I believe they were consumed with the fire of God, each one of them. And John the Baptist had prophesied that when Christ comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in this case, he wasn't speaking about a judgment fire. He was talking about the glory fire of God. Like Moses was up the mountain in the cloud of glory, encountering God. And it says the cloud was like a fire and Moses was in that fire. He wasn't being judged. No, he was encountering the living presence of God. It would have been intense and it would have been awesome. And here these disciples were being consumed with the fire of God. And, and so it's not a judgment fire. It's a glory fire. And it's a wonderful fire because it strips and it burns away things in our life that shouldn't be there. He's the Holy Spirit. And he, and he just he separates our life from everything that is not supposed to be there. Everything that is harmful, hurtful, that wants to try to destroy our lives. If we allow the Holy Spirit to burn in our life, he will actually, he'll burn those things up and cause us to walk in the will of God. And it's also uh, the fire of God. It's his zeal. It's his passion. It's his intensity. And I tell you, as you get into the presence of the Holy Spirit and you let his fire burn in your life, it's, it's very hard not to get on fire for God and get stirred up and passionate for Jesus. Because as his fire is burning all these distractions and temptations off our life and we're being consumed by God, it's like we're getting on fire for him and he's capturing our attention and he's giving us a single focus for what he's calling us to do in this world, which is to be witnesses of Christ. That is why he left us here on earth, not to see how much sin we could overcome, not to see how many things we could accumulate. But he left us here on earth so that he could bring heaven to earth through our lives so that we can see earth going to heaven. In other words, lots of people getting born again. And so... Every believer needs the Holy Spirit and needs the fire of God in their life. And I just love the way the Holy Spirit came like this. And then they were filled with the Spirit. And then they began to pray in tongues and to prophesy. This was the supernatural moving of the Holy Spirit inside of these believers. This is the first time it had happened to them. And it was glorious and amazing and wonderful. And so they're prophesying and declaring the, the goodness of God and the praises of God. And, and prophecy in the new covenant is encouragement. It's exhorting. It builds people up. And so here they're just prophesying under the power of the Holy Spirit. And they also, it says they were praying in tongues and other tongues. This refers to the Holy Spirit enabling them to be able to speak other languages. I mean, this is a gift of God. This is supernatural. Paul actually said in 1 Corinthians 12 that one of the gifts of the Spirit is other tongues, being able to speak in other tongues. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, he says that tongues are also a mystery. It's, it's a mysterious language that is a mystery of the Spirit. And so I know that a lot of people have problem or they have an issue with tongues and they think it's weird. 
but it's actually not that weird. And so I believe tongues is actually a new spiritual language that Jesus has given to his church and he's given to new creation beings. We're new creations in Christ and we're a new species of being. And along with that new species comes a new language. We have our own language as a new species, as new creations. And Jesus even said that these signs will follow them who believe. They will lay their hands on the sick. They will drive out demons and they will speak in other tongues. They will speak in tongues that they've never been taught, but the Holy Spirit will enable them to speak in tongues. Now that could refer to other languages, but it could also refer to mysteries unto God. So it's literally unknown languages that the Holy Spirit enables us to speak. And it's not meaningless. It has a lot of meaning because it's coming from the Spirit. And I believe it's actually our spirit praying in the Spirit and praying to God. And the Bible says that anyone who speaks in tongues edifies himself. They build themselves up. And so the Bible says that it is hard for the natural mind to understand the spiritual mind and to understand spiritual things. But those who understand spiritual things, it's actually easy for them to understand these kinds of things. It's not hard to accept. It's hard to accept if you're only in the natural mind. It's not hard to accept if you understand the spirit, if you're filled with the spirit, if you're in the spirit, if you're walking in the spirit, then it's actually very normal and easy to understand. And so a lot of people grow up in church where tongues is a weird thing. So certain churches reject it and they teach that it's weird and it's not from God and don't partake in it. And so those are mindsets that people have. But actually, when you read the scriptures, you'll see that tongues was quite common. And actually, in the book of Acts, you'll see there's three times when it says that people were filled with the spirit. They also spoke in tongues. And so actually, tongues is very biblical. Now, you don't have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit, or when you get filled with the Spirit, you don't have to speak in tongues. But the Bible does talk about speaking in tongues, and that it's one of the fruits of being filled with the Spirit. And so it is something that we actually should pursue, because it's actually a wonderful thing, and it's a very empowering thing. And the Bible says, he who prays in tongues builds themselves up in the Spirit. And so that's a good thing. And I find that for myself personally, when I spend time praying in tongues, I actually feel things just beginning to shift inside of me. I feel spiritual strength beginning to rise inside of me. And I feel I feel this power on the inside just growing. And there's something about it that I believe causes our inner self to become more conscious of God. And the Bible says that since we live in the Spirit, also walk in the Spirit. And, and different people like John, he was on the Lord's Day, he was in the Spirit. And the Bible actually talks about us getting in the spirit. And this is very normal for spiritually minded people to understand. If you're very naturally minded, then this seems weird. But God has not called us to just be naturally minded. He's called us to be spiritually minded. He's called us to be filled with the spirit and to walk in the spirit. And so I'm all about the Holy Spirit. I'm all about grace and faith and Christ. And I'm all about the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. And Jesus said, I will send him to you and wait for him. It's very important that you receive him because then you receive power. And we see that when the early church received the Spirit, they were empowered by the Spirit to prophesy and to pray in tongues and to speak in other tongues. And so it's a great thing. And the Holy Spirit, he comes as our comforter, as our helper, and he comes to encourage us. He comes to build us up and he comes to release heaven through our lives. And, and why would it be so hard 
to believe that he is able to give us new languages. That he is able to give us words of knowledge, words of wisdom, gifts of healing, miracles, discerning of spirits. All these things come from God. They come from the spirit and they are gifts to bless other people, to set other people free, to testify that Jesus is real. That not only can he save you, but he can heal you as well. Not only can he heal you, but he can save you. And so I love the Holy Spirit. He's very important. But I know a lot of people think that it's weird. And even we're going to see here, the people outside, they thought it was a little bit weird. But then something wonderful happened as a result. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So it says these were Jews, but they were also devout men from all the nations of the world. So quite likely they were Gentiles that had converted to Judaism and were practicing all the customs of the law and the Jewish religion. Possibly they lived in Jerusalem or they were just on pilgrimage to come and celebrate the Passover feast and Pentecost. And so they were in the area at this time. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, that's converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? These were religious people, believers, but they had never heard anything like this before. They never experienced anything like this before. They could tell there's something strange about this, something possibly supernatural about it. What does this mean? And I just love the fact that it was the Holy Spirit and this supernatural sign and wonder that drew the crowds in. Verse 13, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. And so who were the others? Perhaps it was some of the religious people like the Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. Perhaps it was some of the sinners and those that weren't practicing all the customs of Israel. In other words, there was a huge amount of people that could hear this. So it wasn't the church being silent and just hiding out. This was a church that got filled with the Spirit and at the top of their voices were praising God, were prophesying. And there were people outside that thought that they sounded drunk. And so they were mocking them, saying that these they've had too much wine. They've been drinking. And so we can try to avoid this as much as we want. But this is people outside, worldly people that know what it sounds like when people are drunk and when they're acting drunk. And so there must have been something about the early church that made them sound like they possibly were a bit drunk or that they were acting like drunk people. And people say, well, no, the church, we should never, we shouldn't be drunk. And, you know, that just dishonors God. How does that glorify God if the church gets drunk? And that just, it causes people to mock God. And I would just rather side with scripture. I would rather side with the Holy Spirit 
and not try to contain him and control him and tell him what he can and can't do. I want to just let him loose and do whatever he wants to do. And it might cause people to freak out and think it's weird and strange, but actually it drew people in to question. And we saw the end result was a good result. 3000 people got saved. But I personally think that God was sending the Holy Spirit and he is a spirit of joy and celebration and it's and it's happiness because Jewish people had had the law for 1500 years and under the law, there was a lot of curse. There was a lot of destruction and there was a lot of sadness. And so his people had been sad for 1500 years and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes and there's a big celebration. They are praising God and the church is getting happy again. And it's funny that the first miracle that Jesus did was to turn water into wine at a wedding celebration. And the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is the bridegroom. And the church is called to be married to the groom. And that is supposed to be a celebration. And it's just funny that he turns water into wine. And then Jesus also says that the new covenant is like new wineskins. And the Holy Spirit and grace is like the new wine. And it's just funny that he talks about wine and the new covenant. And then Paul says in Ephesians 5.17, Don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The inference there is be drunk on the Spirit. Okay, because natural wine wants to lead us one way. It wants to bring us under its control and lead us a certain way. And Paul is saying we need to come under the control of the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Drink of the Spirit so that you can walk in the Spirit, so that He can lead you a certain way. But it's just funny that he uses wine as the example. And there are a lot of examples of wine in the New Testament. It is the new covenant. It is the joy of the spirit. It brings life. It brings celebration. It brings freedom. It helps to get rid of inhibitions and fears and that. And just to break out and to celebrate. And the enemy, the devil is always trying to steal our joy and bring oppression and depression. And the spirit of God wants to bring life and joy and celebration. And Jesus even said, I played a wedding song, but you didn't celebrate. You didn't dance. And so much of the church is like this. There is a wedding celebration going on and they act like it's a funeral. And that is just religion. But I believe the spirit came to empower the church to get happy, to get excited and to celebrate the resurrection of Christ and to celebrate grace and to celebrate the new covenant and to go out and splash it out and spill it out to this world. And it's not a morbid message. It's not a funeral message. It's a wedding celebration message. And so anyway, I think the church limits the Holy Spirit too much and tries to control him and put him in a box and dictate what he's allowed to do. But I just believe we need to be like the early church where the Holy Spirit just came in and they didn't fight him and resist him. They just enjoyed him. It was a celebration. They were praying, prophesying, worshiping God. And yes, people outside thought it was weird, but you know what? Peter stands up in the wisdom of God. He explains what's going on. And because of this powerful sign and wonder and flow of the Holy Spirit and wise leadership. Because of those two things, 3,000 people get saved. And it's awesome. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. See, some people say, well, see if the Holy Spirit comes and we allow him to just move and do what he wants. You know, some people are going to act really weird and things are going to get out of control and it's going to get crazy. And, you know, the world is just going to think that we're idiots. And that actually is saying that you don't have a lot of confidence in your own leadership because good leaders like Peter, 
he had the situation under control. Even though it was wild and exciting, he actually also had the situation under control. And see, God is not weird and God is not out of control. God has a very specific purpose here. And that was to set the church free, get the church happy and empower them to go and be witnesses to the world, to see people saved and added to the church. And so Peter gets up in the wisdom and authority of God and he explains what is happening. And so we don't need to be afraid of the Holy Spirit, things getting out of control. We just need to move in good leadership and good wisdom and everything's going to be okay. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And so a huge crowd are now listening to Peter. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. So they were supposing that they were drunk. How could they suppose that they were drunk? Because they were acting drunk and they sounded drunk. And we can try to deny that all we want. But if that wasn't the case, then Peter wouldn't have felt the need to address it. But the fact that he addresses it shows that the church was acting a little bit happy and excited and people outside thought that they were drunk. And so Peter feels like he needs to clear that up. So they're not drunk as you suppose. Oh, but they are drunk. It's just not as you suppose. They're drunk in the Holy Spirit. But it's not drunkenness without purpose. There is purpose to this. There is meaning to this. And he goes on to explain that. For well, these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So these were Jewish people that understood prophecy. And he says this very thing, this very thing was actually prophesied and spoken about prophet Joel, a prophet that you respect and honor. And so Joel prophesies. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So this here happening right now, this is what God promised long time ago. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The spirit is not going to be contained in a temple anymore. Now it's going to be poured out on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. As the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we prophesy. And I love the fact that it says sons and daughters, because some people have an issue with women prophesying in church, like it's some big, terrible thing. And they, they get scriptures out of context. And it's actually, they end up just becoming religious and they limit women and treat women like inferior. And, say, and it's just ridiculous. Jesus never came to limit women. He came to empower men and he came to empower women and the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he empowers men and he empowers women to prophesy and to be mighty witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so this is all about the new way of the new covenant of new life. And it is life in the spirit. The old covenant limited people. It crushed people. It made them depressed and sad. And that whole system is weak and useless and has passed away. There is a new way now. It's called the way of the spirit, the way of the new covenant. And it is so much better than the old. It's the new one. It is here. And it was prophesied about through Joel hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. He says, and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes 
the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the signs and the heavens and earth and the blood and the fire and the moon turning. That's actually talking about God's judgments right at the very end of the age, just before Christ returns. And so this is actually prophecy and a promise of the things to come that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit and there is coming a time when Christ will return and he's going to bring judgment on the demonic systems of this world and upon Satan. And those things are going to come down. He's going to destroy them at his coming. But in those times and from the time when the spirit is poured out till the second coming of Christ, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Wow, Peter, that's intense. He just said, you crucified him. It was only 50 days ago that Peter denied Christ three times as they had taken him to arrest him, to crucify him. He had called down curses on himself and he had denied Christ. And then he ran and he fled. And here the same Peter is standing up saying, you crucified him. And it just shows you the, the restoration of God and the grace of God in Peter's life. And Peter here, he wasn't trying to hurt them. He was telling them the truth and try to open their eyes to what is going on so that they would actually turn to this Jesus Verse 24, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so he is talking about the resurrection of Christ. You guys, you killed him and he was the Christ. You knew he was the Christ. He did signs and wonders and miracles in front of you to testify that he was the Christ. And yet you took him and you crucified him. And then he says, but it was impossible for death to hold its grip on Christ because he is the resurrection and the life. And he came back to life. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. And so Peter here talks to them about David because they all honored David. They believed he was a great king and they respected David. But he's saying even here, David prophesied about the Christ and that he was going to rise from the dead. And all of Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Christ. If Christ didn't rise from the dead then Christianity is a joke. It's an absolute fraud. But if Christ did rise from the dead, then Christianity is true. And every other religion is false because Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father in heaven. Only through him can we be saved and born again. And he claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And so he was either a lunatic, he was, or he was a liar, or he was exactly who he said he was, Lord. And by his resurrection, he proved that he was Lord and that he has the power over death. And anyone who believes in him can be saved, can be born again and come into eternal life. And so the resurrection is so important. And even David, King David, spoke about it. 
Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the very Christ who David spoke about and prophesied, who David knew that this Christ would die, but he wouldn't see decay. He would rise again and he prophesied of this. If David were here at the time, he would have recognized and received Christ, the one that he had spoken about, and yet you all rejected him and you crucified him. But you know what? He didn't stay dead. He has risen back to life. And Peter's just giving this brilliant sermon and everything he is saying has been proved right by the coming of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said, as he ascends, as he rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, he will send the Holy Spirit. And this is that Holy Spirit that Joel prophesied about, the result that David prophesied about. Basically, all of this is true. That guy that you crucified named Jesus, that was the Christ and you crucified him. But you know what the good news is? He has risen from the dead. And he's no longer dead. He's in heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit. And then see what happens. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. That's awesome. That's good. That means it's gotten through. It's they believing it and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is awesome. He didn't put works and laws and commandments on them. He just said, repent, turn away from this unbelief, from this old law system, these dead works that are not saving you, and this rejection of Christ. Turn away from it and believe in Jesus Christ. Receive him as your Lord and Savior and be baptized into Christ. I believe that's a spiritual baptism. Now, it could be referring to water baptism, but we know it's not water baptism that saves you. That is just symbolic of what has actually happened. What saves you is spiritual baptism into Christ, where through faith, we are spiritually united with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and sitting on the throne. And that is spiritual baptism. And in order to be born again, you need to be spiritually baptized into Christ. And then we do water baptism as a, as a public declaration to show what has actually happened spiritually in us. But he is saying, have faith in Christ, repent, turn to Christ and be baptized into Christ. And then you receive the forgiveness of your sins. God will take your sins away. Even crucifying Christ, that horrible thing you did, even that will be forgiven and not just covered, but obliterated, separated as far as the east is from the west. 
which is the superiority of the new covenant. It doesn't just cover your sins, it removes your sins and it makes you holy and righteous before God so that we could be born again and so that the Holy Spirit can come and fill us. And so he promises them that through faith in Christ, you will be forgiven and made righteous. That is the blessing of Abraham, righteousness of God, and receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, will come and live inside of you. And this is an awesome promise. And he says in verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this has been promised since the beginning of the world. It was promised through Abraham that all nations on earth will be blessed through his seed, through Christ. And that that blessing is what he's talking about here. Forgiveness made righteous in Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. And through that entering into the kingdom, this is the promise. And this is for everyone. God has called the whole world to this promise, not just Israel, but even the Gentile nations. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Jesus often said, you crooked or you twisted or perverted generation, meaning that they had strayed so far from faith and from obedience to God. And he says, turn from that stuff, flee from that stuff. That stuff's going to be judged. Flee from it and turn to Christ. And then verse 31, so those who received his word were baptized. So not everyone received it, but those who received it were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And that is just so awesome. 3,000 people were added to the 120. And this is the formation of the very first church. And I love the fact that people didn't just get saved and then go their own way, but they actually got added to a church. This is where Jesus instituted the church here on earth. And the church isn't some nebulous thing that we don't know what it is. No, there is the universal church that is the body of Christ that anyone who gets saved becomes a part of that church. But then there are local churches, There's people in a location that, that Jesus calls the flock. And there are shepherds and leaders over the flock. And it's not about control, it's about empowerment. And and we're going to see this amazing picture of the early church and how it was this community of the love of God and of the presence and the power of God and everyone was caring for each other. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I love this. There wasn't anyone forcing them, twisting their arm. You better come to church, better be a part of the church. No, they devoted themselves. And I just love this because religion has to control and to manipulate people. But grace and the new covenant captures people's hearts and then they just devote themselves. And it's a huge difference. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. And so the apostles were the main ones that were teaching. They were the ones that had been with Christ. He had trained them. He had taught them in the ways of the kingdom. They had studied and listened to his teachings. And so now they were teaching. And Jesus said to his apostles, go and teach them everything that I have taught you or commanded you. And so here the apostles were teaching regularly the words of Christ, the word of God. And it was the foundation of Christ. And it was on Christ that the church was built up. Remember, Jesus said, 
On this rock, I will build my church. And that's the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. And people devoted themselves to it. And so the church doesn't have lots of different foundations and lots of winds of doctrines and teach. No, it's built on Christ and it's built on just sound doctrine of the kingdom of God, of the word of God. And here these apostles were laying that in and people were devoting themselves to it. They devoted themselves to fellowship and that is literally sharing their lives together. They didn't just attend church. They were a part of the church. They were part of the community. They loved and they cared for each other's lives. They were literally a family. And that is what church is. It's the family of God. And God has called everyone who gets saved to be added to the church and become part of his family. And this is one of the ways that he cares for people. And they devoted themselves to it. And so I'm sure that there was arguments and fighting and people hurt them and let them down. But they didn't just run off and say, well, forget about you. No, they were devoted. They were committed. And it's like that in family. You know, we sometimes we offend each other, say the wrong thing. But, you know, we say sorry. We make up. We make it up. We don't just run off and try to find another family. No, they devoted themselves to the church and no one had to twist them and manipulate them to come oh, where were you last week didn't see you at church. no they devoted they committed themselves and that's what happens when God has captured your heart you devote yourselves and it's like when all these other things capture your heart then you want to run after this and run after that but when Christ captures your heart you want to devote yourself to him and to his church and to his purposes here on the earth and you might have a job and a career, but all of that is actually a part of serving Jesus, the King, and giving your life to Him. And so our career and interests in life shouldn't cut across and be opposite and oppose Christ and His purposes. It should actually complement and support and be a part of Christ's purposes here on earth. And so we use our giftings and our talents and our possessions, everything we have and everything we are, to serve Christ and his church, and his great commission here on earth. And in that, we find our purpose. It's wonderful. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread. That's the communion, the communion meal that Jesus told us to keep doing in remembrance of him. And it was a celebration of his death and of his resurrection. And we do it because it's a hope. Do this in remembrance of me until I come back. So it would have been really hard to do it in with 3,000 people, and most people agree that they mostly did the breaking of bread in from house to house. So in smaller fellowships, smaller groups. And so people devoted themselves to the public teaching of the apostles, to fellowship coming together, but also from house to house, breaking bread, sharing their lives together in each other's homes and to prayers. So they devoted themselves to prayers and we'll see a bit later that actually they had daily prayers. They came together as a corporate community to pray every day in the temple area. And that's awesome. That just shows how important prayer is and that it's God's will that we pray. And that as a church, we come together and we pray. And prayer is literally us recognizing our need for God and that we can't do it on our own. And so it's a humble posture. And it's saying, God, we need you in, this, in our lives and in our situations. And so prayer is actually partnering with God and it's partnering with heaven to see heaven coming to earth in our lives, in our situations. 
And so no doubt they would have been praying for the church, praying for each other, but also praying for Israel and praying for Jerusalem and praying that God would come and and do mighty signs and wonders and miracles and change everyone's life and save everyone. They devoted themselves to praying. And it's a wonderful thing because a praying church is a powerful church. And prayer also reminds us of what our priorities should be because we pray into the priorities of heaven. And so prayer helps to actually keep the church focused on what they're supposed to be doing. And so these things are extremely important. The apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. And it shows us that if these things were important for the early church, they're also important for us today as a part of Christ's church. And verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. I I love that. Awe. It's like a reverence of God. Like God is here. God is with us. God is moving amongst us. God is doing amazing things. Heaven is coming to earth through our life. And, And we are captured by the awe of God. This wasn't just some haphazard thing, kesara, just going through the motions, mundane life. No, they were captured. They were living in the moment. This whole thing was arresting them and capturing them. And they were living for God and God was in their midst and they were awe inspired. And I love it, it says every soul. There wasn't some that were lackadaisical and distracted by all of this, but every single person was captured by God and just serving him, living for him. It's just, it's wonderful. But the more religion has come into the church, the more that we've replaced the presence of God with programs, and the more we've replaced the grace of God with law of God, and the more we've replaced faith with works, I tell you, the more the church has grown cold, has become religious, has lost its love for Jesus and its passion, it's lost its fire. And I tell you, if the church can just get back to the grace of God, to a simple faith in Christ, And to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, I tell you, the church will get back on fire for God. And it's so simple. It's just grace, faith, and the Spirit of God. And the church will get back on fire for God. We've got to get rid of religion and the grave clothes and the death. Because that stuff just crushes and kills people's passion. And I tell you, it's the grace of God. It's faith in Christ. And it's the Spirit of God that awakens people to the Spirit. It awakens people to heaven and to an eternal perspective. And so I believe the best thing that you can do in church is to preach the gospel of grace. It's to preach Christ as the foundation and it's to release the Holy Spirit and get people full of the Spirit and to be open to the presence of God and to the supernatural of God. And I tell you, this stuff brings heaven's atmosphere into the place. And when heaven's atmosphere is in the place, I tell you, everyone is full of the awe of God. And then the church becomes powerful and effective. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Wonderful sense of unity and caring for each other. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I mean, this is true family. This is sharing life together, really caring about each other and about the community This is not independent, selfish living, just living for me and my life and my little bubble. No, this is a selfless community that is full of the love of God and full of love for each other. And in this modern world where everyone is just focused on themselves and selfish, but I think somehow the church needs to get back to this. I mean, this is quite challenging. 
Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So attending temple, they used to gather in the temple area. That was their corporate meetings. That was a large area. Remember Jesus sat in the temple area teaching and it says the crowds, the multitudes came and many were healed. So there was, it was a large area. And so the church moved from the upper room, kind of hiding away in the upper room. Now they were in the most public area. And they were a large crowd, over 3,000 of them. And they just, they had boldness. They just went in there like Jesus did. And they were just teaching. The apostles were standing up and teaching. I mean, you can imagine where were the Pharisees and all of this? We're going to hear about them soon. They obviously didn't like what was going on. But I love the fact that the church now is full of the power of God, the Holy Spirit. They know that God is with them. They know that Jesus is the Christ that everyone needs to repent and put their faith in him. And so they bold, they standing up in the temple area, they preaching the gospel and everyone is going day by day. They meeting in the temple. This is happening now in Jerusalem. The church is becoming public and it is growing. And not only did they meet publicly, corporately as a church, as one body, but they also met in homes. So from house to house. And that's obviously smaller groups where they could break bread together, really in each other's homes, just sharing life together. And it's just a wonderful picture of church. A lot of people say, no, church should only be in homes, home church, house church, you know, and this gathering corporately. That's just the institutional church. And that's not what God wants. And no, actually, we have a wonderful model and a pattern here in the Bible. The church met corporately together in the temple area and from house to house. So that's God's will. It's both. It's not one or the other. It's both and together in the temple area as a corporate body, as a corporate church, the church that Jesus instituted with leadership, apostles leading people and house to house, a bit more casual, sharing life together. Both of those things are healthy and wonderful. And it's good to have both and not just one at the expense of the other. We want to be biblical and follow God's pattern and his plan. Well, then we need to honor his word and not edit it and take out bits that we don't like because perhaps we got hurt in the church or offended in the church or someone didn't recognize us and promote us and, and it just it offended us. And so we just we just took some people from the church and we started meeting in our home and we developed a theology that said, no, this is more biblical. This is more holy. And so basically then that church got birthed out of hurt and bitterness and rebellion. And I wouldn't want to have any part of that. In fact, that's divisive. But that's in some cases. It doesn't mean every church that meets in a house started that way. No, God could have called them to do that. And then it could grow and become bigger and, you know, more people wanting to join. It doesn't mean it has to keep breaking up into lots of little houses. It can, you can gather and meet together in an area publicly and from house to house. All of this is scripture. All of this is healthy. And people say, well, no, if you have a big church, then it will lose the family feel. No, that's not the truth because the early church was a big church and they didn't lose their family feel. They met corporately and from house to house. They still had a family feel. And it's not the size that determines the family feel. It's the heart and it's the culture that determines the family feel. And it's the way that you lead the church that will determine if it has a family culture or not. It actually has nothing to do with the size. People say, oh, no, if it's too big, then people get neglected. Well, the early church was very big and no one got neglected. Everyone was cared for. And it has a lot to do with everyone devoting themselves. 
It's actually everyone was giving. It wasn't about taking and what, what can I get out of it? And I'm coming to church for what I can get out of it. No, I'm going to love people. I'm going to care for others. I'm going to help others. And yes, I'm being fed. Yes, I'm receiving, but I'm actually going to give. And I tell you, if everyone has that heart, and that attitude and it's devoted to that, then everyone gets cared for, no one will get neglected, and the church will be healthy. And I tell you, it'll be a place that people will want to join and become a part of. And so they broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. And so what a wonderful church. I mean, wouldn't you love to just be a part of that church? Now, yes, they had challenges and difficulties and persecution came and, you know, there were problems that developed that needed good leadership to help fix. And, you know, it wasn't the perfect church, but you can see it was a wonderful church and it's the church that Jesus started and he prepared his disciples for this church. And I just, it had a wonderful culture. And then it says that daily people were being saved and added to the church. So this church continued to grow and grow and grow. And so if you want to know how to pattern your church, I, I would suggest don't go for all the latest church growth strategies and techniques. Some of those things can be helpful, but you have to start in the book of Acts to discover what God's heart and his plan is for his church. And we see here very much that it was started with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it was foundationed on Christ, the rock. And I believe to honor him and to be good, faithful stewards, we need to get back to his plan for the local church. And so it was an exciting start. And now we're going to see the journey that the church takes because Jesus doesn't want it to be just Jerusalem and Israel, but he wants to take this to the outermost parts of the world. And I believe the way to fulfill the Great Commission is to plant churches like this in every town and village of every city of every nation of the world. Loving communities of people that are surrendered to Christ that have good leadership, that have the presence of God, and they show the world what it looks like when heaven comes to a community of people, that there is freedom, that there is love, that there is wholeness, that there is healing, power, care for one another, joy, and ultimately salvation through Jesus Christ. And these churches that are full of the Spirit are testimonies. They witness of Jesus Christ to the world and it's to draw the world in so that the world can be saved and added to the church and i tell you if there are churches like this growing in every community around the world it is not going to take long until we fulfilled the great commission hey this is ryan rufus and i hope you enjoyed this last chapter could i ask if you've been blessed by the grace bible commentary would you consider making a donation to new nature ministries to help support the ongoing work of the Grace Bible Commentary. That would be greatly appreciated. To do that, simply go to newnatureministries.org. Thank you and God bless.